Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host for this program, and you're hearing us from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Leroy Husengay. He's the Administrative Chair of Human and Divine Sciences at the University of Mary, Bismarck, North Dakota. He's a former Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican background, and he was a guest on my Journey Home program back in April. Uh, Dr. Husengay, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I, I know you're busy, uh, I'm sure, in this month getting ready for the fall. That's right around the corner, the studies. And uh, But I wanted to see if you could join me just for a half hour or so to talk about a scripture. And I'm, I'll, I'll tell the audience that I did something with you that I don't often do, and that is that I surprised you with a verse. So I'm dropping it in your lap. And it's... It's a scripture that uh, I, I knew that you uh, are very familiar with, Matthew and Mark in the Gospels, both because of your own personal uh, devotion and study, but you teach them. So in some ways I'm being unfair because I'm kind of snipping out a little verse out of a greater context, but you can talk about that. But the verse that I have found fascinating, because when I was a Protestant, I wasn't sure how to interpret it but I'd like to get your thoughts on. And that's, <clears throat> and for the audience, we're looking at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, and I'm going to read it for those of you don't, that don't have a Bible in front of you. But there's one particular verse, and, and uh, Dr. Husengay, you don't have to emphasize this particular verse of this collection, but uh, it's one that uh, I would say ha- almost haunts me if you will. Um, it fascinates me uh, because of my spiritual background. As a, I was Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Congregationalist. You were Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican before we became Catholic. And it's that little phrase when our Lord says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now let me read the wider context. And um, what I'd love to do, if I could, is I'd like to invite you to look at this verse first through your pre-Catholic eyes, how you would have understood this verse, what would you have done with it before you were open to the Catholic Church? And let me read the verse now. Uh, And this is what you would say is almost the second to the last uh, topic in the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Excuse me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So, Dr. Husengay, uh, what do you think of this passage? You know, I suppose when I was a young Christian um, and a Protestant and an evangelical, you know, we'd, we'd read stuff like this in our Bible studies as teenagers, as college students. And, you know, it's really frightening because uh, w- when you're that age, I mean, you take 
your salvation seriously, yeah. right? This is your life, you know, you're young, you're radical. Uh, and then you ask yourself, well, am I one of the people that's going to wind up in heaven? Or am I one of these people <laughs> to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoers. And for a lot of young people, uh, you know, I imagine people are more mature in their faith too. I mean, it can create a real crisis uh, in their faith. Uh, so I suppose the best we could ever do was to say, you know, well, there are true Christians and false Christians out there. And then to say, if you're bothered by this, you know, kind of like how Calvinists and others are sometimes bothered about wondering whether they're part of the elect or not. You know, if you're yeah. bothered about this, then it's simply an indication uh, that it doesn't apply to you. It's only those false Christians who wouldn't really be bothered by this. <laughs> you know, so that's one way of dealing with it. And I, I don't think it's totally wrong or false, but I think you have to ask the further question, which few of us ever got around to doing. And that's, you know, what does it mean to be a, a true Christian versus a false Christian? Right. I think a lot of us went too quick to the, uh, the self-reassuring uh, pastoral maneuver, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's, when, when I look back on this passage, you know, I see groups of people. I see those that are kind of the once saved, always saved, that I suppose mm -hmm. I was of that camp in which I would have preached that if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior— that, as you said, uh, Dr. Husengate, the very fact that you did that is a sign that you're of the elect, you're of the, of the chosen, and it, it really wasn't God. It wasn't you that chose God. It was God that chose you. And the fact that you cried out, Lord, Lord, well, that was a sign that you were of his chosen. Um, and so you could, I guess, presume that... Um, that your cry of Lord, Lord was therefore genuine. And so this might not apply to you. Of course, God knew you because he called you. I mean, that'd be one way to answer this passage. Mm -hmm. I suppose there's another group of people that um, maybe their, their inner faith isn't very strong, but they look at their lives. You, hey, I was baptized and I go to worship regularly, or hey, I did this or I did that. What do you mean? Uh, uh, and he's talking about, well, you, yeah, you did all that stuff, but, uh, but did we have some kind of a relationship at all? Uh, I mean, I, I suppose I think of that as maybe us sometimes as fathers, we get so busy that we, we don't really spend time with our family. We can get so busy. Did they, do they know us anymore? I mean, that's another way to approach, approach this passage. And, um, I'm wondering, uh, as you get the bigger context, do you see that this, before we get into maybe from a Catholic perspective specifically, do you see that uh, looking at this passage within the bigger context of the Sermon on Mount helps us put it into a meaningful context? Well, I think it does. And, you know, I'm always telling my students here at the University of Mary, uh, that there's three rules for good interpretation. You know, and the first is context, and the second is context, and yay, the third is like it, context. <laughs> um, you know, so my, my better profs in grad school would say things like, you know, a, a text without a context is a pretext for all sorts of things, you know, <laughs> comparison to bad ideas. Yeah. 
Uh, so, you know, every Bible verse is set in the context of a passage and a passage and context of a wider movement in the document. And ultimately, you know, the context of any biblical verse is the book it's in, the canon of Scripture, and the canon of Scripture belongs to the church. And, you know, so you have to think yep. about all these examples of context. You know, we're not going to go that far today necessarily. But we're in Matthew chapter 7, and so we're in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. And these verses we're looking at, Matthew 7, 21 and following, uh, are part of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount itself is the charter for the church and how Jesus' disciples, as members of his church, are supposed to live their lives. That's why you find all sorts of what looks like practical instruction, right? This is how you live your life. Um, you know, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, right? You know, <laughs> Jesus, six couplings in Matthew 5, the Lord's Prayer. You know, when you pray, pray like this in Matthew 6. You know, Matthew 7, you know, do not give, you know, pearls to swine or dogs what is sacred. You know, do not judge, so on and so forth. Okay. So a lot of people think the Sermon on the Mount is about ethics because of this. I mean, it looks like it's what we moderns want to call ethics. But boy, the whole thing is deeply apocalyptic, yep. right? It has to do with heaven and hell and the end times and Satan, right? You know, right in the Lord's mm -hmm. Prayer, how it ends, you know, deliver us from the evil one. Not just generic evil, but, you know, in the Greek, you know, Latin, right, from the evil one. Um you know, something Pope Francis has pointed out on occasion as it happens. Mm -hmm. You get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the second half of Matthew 7, and now Jesus is just driving the apocalyptic point home, right? Everybody's going to be judged at the end of time, and, you know, there's basically two ways. You find here in Matthew the doctrine of the two ways, like you find in other ancient Christian documents, like the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Mm -hmm. So Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, right? There's an easy and wide gate that leads to destruction, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, right? Um, then a warning against false prophets, those who come to you in sheep's clothing but are ravenous wolves, right? Or sound trees versus bad trees, right? A good tree bears good fruit, bad trees, bad fruit. Um, and then finally we come to our verses we're dealing with today, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Matthew 7, 21. After that, again, you're back to the two ways. Uh, the wise and foolish builders um, includes the whole thing, right? The wise man builds his house on the rock, the foolish on the sand. And then you get the apocalyptic storms of the eschaton, right? Mm -hmm. Beating down end of time, right? That's when the rains are falling and the floods are coming. Like this ain't about like if you build your you know, life on Jesus, your kids are going to go to a good college like the University of Mary, and you're never going to lose your car, you <laughs> won't ever be on roller skates, you know, stuff like this. You know, this, these are the apocalyptic storms of the end of time that's going to test everybody's uh, foundation. Okay, so what does that mean for the verses uh, that we're talking about today? Basically, Jesus here is dividing his hearers into two potential groups, right? True Christians, false Christians, people whom the Lord really knows and people whom the Lord doesn't know. Okay? Mm -hmm. And I 
it's ab- absolutely crucial. Working, working backwards a bit from verse 23, right? Jesus says, then, at the end of time, right? Uh, Jesus will declare to these people, I never knew you, apart from you evildoers. That's key. It doesn't say, you didn't really know me. It says, I never knew you. Okay? Yep. Direction's important. So the question is, how do we get Jesus to know us? What does it mean for Jesus to know us? Right? Before I answer that, then let's, let's back up to the other two verses. Right? Mm-hmm. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do mighty works in your name? Okay? This is an important point. People can have all sorts of gifts, from common gifts to spiritual gifts, and be a disaster of a human being, be a <laughs> miserable human being. Um, and I think it, you don't have to look very far in church history or the contemporary news yep. to see people in all walks of life, in the church, outside the church, Protestant churches, whatever, uh, politics, you know, who have all sorts of gifts, but man, are their lives just a wreck. Yep. And then there's a great apocalypse, a great unveiling, and they get busted, and it turns out that they are somewhere between sinful and criminal. How does that happen? Well, it's because sometimes gifts are, oftentimes gifts are external to the person. Like St. Paul says, you know, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, Right. Um, You know, so just because you can work miracles even doesn't mean you're a good person. And that's the important thing here. Matthew is not a gospel of rules so much as it's a gospel that wants its readers to be shaped in virtue. Right. The classical virtues, the theological virtues. You know, Jesus is looking for a particular kind of people right he doesn't simply want you know people who do a few good things or people who can bring renown to his name but he wants to know them he wants them to be virtuous he wants them to be saints that's why i think he says i never knew you how does jesus know you he knows you when he comes to you he gets to know you and how does that happen primarily in the sacraments. He knows it from the inside out when we take him into our bodies, rightly and truly, with the right dispositions. So I've thrown a lot at you, Mark. Oh, Where no, that awesome stuff. I was, as I was listening to your the context, I was finding myself connecting verse 14 with verse 23, almost this idea that you know, people with gifts in the verse 22 and, and thinking that by using these gifts that that simply qualifies them for back in verse 13 to have, you know, gone through the long passageway to the narrow gate and then they get to the narrow gate thinking, you know, I've, I've arrived uh, only to find out I never knew you. Um and it, it kind of reminds me of of that other parable where the you know the the ladies are waiting for the the bridegroom with their lamps and uh, mm-hmm. they think they're fine 
But when he finally comes, they realize, well, wait a second, you, you don't have oil for your lamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, are, you know, are we in our lives day by day, week by week, month by, wump, my, by month, moving forward, presuming um, all's just well and good? Um, and maybe it's because we look at our lives and we gloat a bit because look what I'm doing. Um, look what I'm doing. Uh, but but does he know us, as you were saying? Do we, does he know us? Um, and I'm wondering uh, to what extent, given the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we begin with asking the question, well, do I know him? Uh, and it seems to me that's a necessary, at least a necessary first step uh, to, to him being able to have the opportunity to, uh, to let us open up enough so that he can know us is that we need to know him. I mean, obviously he's a creator, so, I mean, how is it that God doesn't know us? He knows every hair then on our heads, our Lord says elsewhere. But that's not what he's talking about. You know, uh, he knows us as our creator, as the father of all humanity. But uh, have we made the step of, of, of uh, responding to his grace to know him and then in the process, uh, has he come to know us? And uh, again, your Lutheran, your Presbyterian, your Anglican backgrounds have probably different ways to answer that question uh, than maybe our Catholic way now. And you've said the sacraments, which again fascinates me, Dr. Gay, because um, outside of the Catholic Church, often... Our backgrounds, our non-Catholic backgrounds, did not recognize the fact that in this age of the church, the primary way to know Christ and for him to know us, as you said, is in the sacraments. Uh, our, our evangelical backgrounds would have said differently. We, we come to know him in other ways. So talk a little bit more about from a Catholic perspective specifically, how does, how does one come to know him and him come to know us through the variety of ways in which we have in our Catholic faith? Yeah, you know, for me, converting, you know, like we talked about uh, when I was on the TV show with you, yeah. you know, yeah. one of the attractive things about Catholicism is that it's often broad and robust and dynamic. Right. There's not one way to pray, but, you know, a myriad of ways to pray. Yep. Uh, there's not just one simple way to relate to God, but there's all these different means by which we relate to God. Um, it's, it's just rich and dynamic that way. You know, so our, you know, our evangelical friends, you know, will often, you know, especially the non-denominational sorts will often talk about, you know, having a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, but it's it's purely spiritual. I pray the sinner's prayer, say their prayers, you know, read their Bibles, all very good things. Right. It's a way to kind of, you know, knowing Jesus experientially. Um, you know, we have that too, you know, that kind of minute-by-minute, day-by-day sense of Jesus' presence, you know, doing personal devotions, you know, inviting Jesus into our hearts, you know, not just once, but, you know, ever deeper. But beyond that, you know, we also have, 
you know, the whole sacramental system as well as sacramentals, you know, things that aren't formal sacraments, like the rosary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just gives us almost limitless ways of relating to Jesus and getting to know him better. Uh, you know, I often, and I'm not the only one, I mean, a lot of us who are, you know, Catholic speakers and teachers, you know, we'll compare a relationship to, uh, you know, God, Christ, and his church, you know, to marriage. Yeah. And, you know, it, when a husband and wife are married, they don't just talk to one another, right? You know, they that's, that's one sort of intercourse, right? And if I can mm-hmm. be a little old here, there's a second sort of intercourse where you share your very bodies. Yeah. And sacraments, you know, this is very John Paul theology of the body. Oh, the sacraments are like that. You know, Jesus does, just doesn't talk to us or communicate to us. You know, but in the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, you know, he shares his very self with us, you know, and that's the most intimate way you can know somebody is by, you know, sharing their body. Uh, so if, if a person wants to know Jesus and actually to have Jesus know them, I would think the Eucharist is the greatest way of doing that. This morning... Um, I attended a funeral of a friend who I've known uh, for about 20 years, and she was a very committed Catholic Christian, convert to the church, she and her husband both, um, good friends. And uh, I was thinking, as the fine Dominican priest gave the homily about her, um, as he shared her strengths uh, and, and reminded us of things we knew about her. But uh, I was thinking about this passage this morning, uh, Dr. Husengay, is maybe something that I'd put before you, because the question is, uh, how did we know her? Um, uh, you know, we, we know things about her. Uh, we, we came to know her as a friend, and people knew her as a mother and a grandmother and a and a wife, um, and uh, the the priest that gave the homily knew maybe some things about her. The rest of us don't know because he was her confessor. Um, but those are parts of all of us that we hide from other people. Uh, it, you know, you, Doctor Husengay, I don't know you very well. You know, we've talked a couple times. Do we know each other? And. I'm thinking of those of two things about that. I mean, what we hide, what we protect, what we hold back, what we put forward, uh, maybe to let other people think they know us. So the question is, how do we come to know Jesus, and how do, does He come to really know us? Um, you know, I was thinking of why. The church is of seeing scripture through the eyes of the church is so absolutely important because, especially, you know, uh, Dr. Husengay, from your studies and your teaching, that historically, uh, once you break out of the, the, the protective boundaries of sacred tradition, uh, there are a lot of ideas of who Jesus is and was. And, and how he did miracles, or how he, um, where he got his strength, or did he know he was God, and all these other views of knowing Jesus. And it, it, it's interesting that once you break free from those trustworthy boundaries and then set yourself up as the 
private interpreter of Scripture, you, you kind of end up with both of a misunderstanding. You could miss a, a complete misunderstanding of who Jesus was, and you could come up with a misunderstanding of how I'm supposed to live my Christian life because I can interpret verses the way I want to interpret them. So that in the end, I may not know him and he may not know me. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have I have a several. Um, let me start with this. Yeah. You know, becoming Catholic, one of the most helpful things was seeing the church's tradition as an arena within which to play, as a river with banks within which I could swim or canoe or, you know, pick your metaphor. <laughs> it's not that, you know, somebody in the church like the Pope wakes up one morning, decides a passage or a book or whatever means this, issues a document you know, and, you know, then just Shazam drops out on everybody, and that's what the Bible must mean, right? In many ways, the official church defines things in the wake of the fervent work done by her preachers and teachers and theologians and lay people, um, which means that for, for someone like me or, you know, your average layperson who's simply interested in the Bible— you're allowed to read the thing and think about it um, and drink in all its glories, but you don't have to like simply you know, memorize what yep. the church has officially taught about each and every verse because it hasn't taught a whole lot about each and every verse. Right. But you do get this really great framework you know, rooted in the tradition that helps us make sense of what Scripture is teaching. And I found as a Protestant lacking that, the whole Bible just fell apart, mm -hmm. right? It was like there was no glue. But with the tradition, with the church, I knew how to relate Matthew to Leviticus, to St. Paul, to Haggai, to Revelation, to Genesis. Um, but I, I just want to make absolutely you know, clear that becoming a Catholic and having this tradition doesn't mean you don't get to exercise your mind, but boy, that tradition will tell you, uh, you know, when you're coming up with a very bad idea that's going to put you outside the bounds of orthodoxy. A good example of that is the Trinity. That, yeah. That, that when, once we understand one God and three persons, and, and three persons, and we understand those relationships, then, as you said, you've got the, the, the very clear banks around the river that allows you to swim, but it allows you to, under, to put together passages in the New Testament as well as in Genesis, and where we see God the Father, and we see the Lord, and we see the Spirit, and how do we fit those together? You have the banks within which you can freely uh, and prayerfully uh, under, you know, interpret Scripture, but you, you got to stay within these banks, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, that's the beauty of the church and, and who he yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, biblical interpretation isn't simply repristination of what either Augustine or Thomas or whoever said whatever, but, you know, you know, friends of mine, you know, like Scott Hahn or John Bergsma or Michael Barber, you know, you know, they're doing really creative and original work. You know, they're seeing yeah. things that maybe nobody's ever really seen before. Some of the Old Testament, New Testament connections, you know, that yeah. we make. Um, you know, but we hope that they're there and they're intended by the Holy Spirit, the ultimate author and interpreter of Scripture. And, you know, when we when we write the works we're writing, you know, we're doing so, you know, within those banks. But hopefully we're also helping the 
great oak tree, you know, that the interpretation of the Bible is, you know, uh, bloom and flourish and leaf out a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. So Maybe uh, one last thought then, if I could uh, ask you. Um, how does receiving the Lord in the Eucharist help him to know us? Yeah, that's the, uh, the other thing I, I wanted to talk about. You know, so there's two ways God knows us, right? Jesus knows us. Like you said earlier, I mean, God is omniscient. He knows everything. And presumably, you know, Jesus being God has knowledge that your average human being doesn't have. Um, So when Jesus says, I never knew you, you know, presumably it doesn't mean that he's, you know, ignorant of a whole lot of things. It's it's the second sense of deep, intimate, personal knowledge, right? You know, and it's one thing, again, for us to know about Jesus or think we actually know him personally because we've not only learned about him in the Bible, but, you know, experienced him in some deep way. But he's got to know us, and he's got to know us intimately. And the only way he can know us intimately is if we let him in, not only to our vague hearts or our spirits, you know, but actually into our very bodies in things like the Eucharist. And then he comes to know us, and even as we come to know him more deeply. I mean, you could say that that's what the, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount was all about, is uh, how we, we come to know him and how he comes to know us. Poverty of spirit, um, through uh, you know being a light to the world, you know all the different things he talked about through prayer and almsgiving and fasting. Uh, all those are ways um, that he comes to know us um, through the way we relate to other people, loving God and loving one another. Uh, uh, and and a lot of it is in the things we do. Why are we doing them? Uh, are we doing them in a, out of surrender to Christ? Uh, these are all ways in which we can, uh, by grace, uh, come to know him deeper and for him to, to know us. Dr. Husengate, thank you for joining us on the program. I look forward to maybe we can join again sometime. Would that be all right? I'd welcome that. That would be a lot of fun. I always enjoy doing these sorts of things. This would so be great. And you have a website, right? Uh, yeah, drleroyhusengay.com. Great. And for the audience. Great. If you audience, you want to know more about what, what Dr. Husengay does and what he teaches and writes and speaks on, uh, please go to his website. So, again, thank you, uh, Dr. Husengay, for joining us today. And thank you, all of you listeners, uh, to joining us on Deep in Scripture. You can find out more about the Coming Home Network at our website, chnetwork.org. God bless you. See you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.